At its pinnacle, the British Empire was so vast it was the empire on which the sun never sets. It encompassed as much as one quarter of the earth. But 1,000 years before her height, the blazing inferno of power was merely a smoldering candle on the precipice of being extinguished. The late 700 AD British Isles were a collective of nine minor kingdoms, closer to warring tribes than to true nations. These kingdoms were Christian due to the missionary efforts of men like St. Patrick, St. David, and ultimately a Pope-sanctioned mission from St. Augustine in 597 AD. Just to the east, a pagan storm was growing. The Northmen, Danes, or Vikings, through overpopulation, or more than likely due to a global cooling and difficulty with growing crops in cooler weather, sent their first raiding party to the ripe British Isles. The first major Viking raid landed on a small island off the coast called Lindisfarne. Dr. Ben Merkel says that, Lindisfarne was probably chosen as a target since churches and monastic communities offered the prospect of great wealth with very little protection. In the following years, monasteries throughout Britain and Ireland would fall prey to the Viking raids. The Vikings came from the sea arriving in a handful of their longboats with little or no warning of their approach. Their shallow drafted ships were beached on the shore of Holy Island and then pulled far enough up the shore to be safe from the tide for several hours. The monks, merely puzzled for the moment, watched from within the walls of the monastery. Then, once the ships were secured, the Vikings turned to the monastery. It is unlikely that they met any resistance as they approached. No barrage of arrows and spears, no shield wall not even an armed guard. After gaining an easy entrance, the raiding party plundered the monastery of whatever portable wealth could be found, hacking to pieces whatever feeble resistance the monks may have made. Gold, silver, and jewels were seized and hauled back to the beached longboats, as well as any captives who might be sold on the slave market. They struck swiftly and ruthlessly and then they quickly fled before any counterattack from a neighboring village could be mounted." End quote. This attack was a taste of what would come from the Viking invaders. It was merely a first small raid of a scouting party to test defenses and gauge the wealth of this land. To the Anglo-Saxon people of the British Isles, it was a new threat. But one has to ask, was it only a threat from a hungry pagan tribe? Or was it more? Could this be a sign of God's judgment? In answer, an Anglo-Saxon historian offered his observation. In the year 793, terrible portents came over the land of Northumbria and miserably afflicted the people. There were massive whirlwinds and lightnings and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. Immediately after these things, there came a terrible famine and then, a little after that, six days before the Ides of January, a harrowing of heathen men miserably devastated the Church of God on Lindisfarne by plunder and slaughter." End quote. This raid at Lindisfarne became a wave of attacks from the pagan Northmen. 
They targeted monastery communities, bathing the walls of these holy places in the blood of priests in their brutal attacks, and plundered all silver and gold as well as people for the slave trade. They had no regard for the Christian churches or their sacred items. Modern scholars confidently declare that the Vikings were opportunists, which proved to be true, but that the targeting of monasteries was merely because of their poor defenses and the wealth they contained. But was there more to the invasion than mere opportunism? Was the targeting of these Christian places of worship a coincidence? Alcuin, a former clergyman from York and a leading scholar in Charlemagne's court, wrote the following. For nearly 350 years, we and our fathers have dwelt in this most beautiful land, and never before has such a terror appeared in Britain, such as the one that we are suffering from this pagan nation. Nor was it thought that a ship would attempt such a thing. Behold the church of St. Cuthbert splattered with the blood of the priests, plundered all of its treasures. A place more venerable than anywhere in Britain is given over to pagan nations for pillaging. The heritage of the Lord has been given over to a people who are not his own. And where the praise of the Lord once was, now is only the games of the pagans. The holy feast has been turned into lament. Carefully consider, brothers, and diligently note lest this extraordinary and unheard of evil might be somehow merited by the habit of some unspoken wickedness. I am not saying that the sin of fornication never appeared before among the people. But since the days of King Elfwood, fornications, adulteries, and incest have inundated the land such that these sins have been perpetrated without any shame, even against nuns who have been dedicated to God, what can I say about greed, robbery, and perverted judgments? When it is clearer than day how much these crimes have flourished everywhere, and it is witnessed by a plundered people. End quote. Alcuin continues in a second letter to Higbald, the bishop of the plundered Lindisfarne. In his correspondence, he sternly admonished the Christians of Lindisfarne that a disaster of this magnitude must be answered first and foremost with repentance, lest further catastrophe follow. He wrote, What confidence can there be for the churches of Britain if St. Cuthbert, with such a great number of saints, does not defend his own? Either this is the beginning of some much greater anguish, or the sins of the inhabitants have demanded this. Clearly it has not happened by chance but it is a sign that this was well-deserved by someone. If there is anything that must be set right in your grace's behavior, correct it swiftly." End quote. Perhaps it was too late for the people to turn back. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But maybe the people of the British Isles had stored up too much unrepented sin for too long. Maybe the long fuse had smoldered all the way down. Whatever the reason, God's judgment through the pagan Viking instrument had begun. After 72 years of intermittent Viking raids, there was a sense of terror and constant anxiety that had spread among the Anglo-Saxon peoples. Another Viking attack came, though, unlike the raiding parties that had sailed to the island before. This time, it wasn't merely a raiding party. 
it was a full-fledged army. At 5,000 strong, the Viking army marched into the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria and launched a surprise attack on November 1st, All Saints Day. It was not by accident the Vikings attacked on this holiday. They knew the Northumbrian capital city of York would be filled to max capacity, making troop movements difficult. There was also the benefit that the Northumbrian noblemen would be in attendance with their wealth on full display. The Vikings quickly took the unprepared city. A few months later, the Northumbrians attempted to retake the city. The initial attack went well for their army. It appeared initially that the Vikings were caught unprepared, or they were unfamiliar with the tactics of defending a walled city. The Northumbrian army breached the walls and, to their surprise, entered a quiet city. They navigated the narrow city streets, looking for signs of their Norse enemy. Suddenly, they were ambushed, both inside and outside the city walls. The Anglo-Saxon King Ale was captured. The Viking lords made an example of the king by sacrificing him to their god Odin. The monstrous ritual sacrifice was called the Blood Eagle. The king was held face down in the mud and manure-covered cobblestone streets. An axe was used to chop his ribs on both sides of his spine. The murderous shouts of the bloodthirsty Norsemen echoed around the city as the king's ribs were pulled apart and his still-inflating lungs were grappled from his body as his gurgling last gasps of life were pulled from him. The Viking army moved south with their eyes set on the kingdom of Wessex. They soon met King Ethelred and his young brother Elfred on the battlefield. In a valiant fight, the Vikings overwhelmed the Wessex army. The king and his brother quickly retreated to Ashdown. The monumental Battle of Ashdown is among the greatest battles in the history of the West, not because of its size, but because it gave us one of the greatest kings in history. The Kingdom of Wessex was facing annihilation after their recent loss to the Viking army. The Wessex battle plans had formed between Ethelred and Alfred. They would divide their forces and immediately attack the Viking army. The Vikings had the high ground on a now famous hill. It goes by many names, but it is most commonly known as Whitehorse Hill. This hill is an anomaly in the area, being the tallest point. One other hill of significance nearby is known as Dragon Hill, where legend says St. George slew his dragon. The hill was the dragon's burial mound. On the slopes of Whitehorse Hill, there stood a lone thorn tree that became a tree of both measure of success and of remembrance for the soldiers who valiantly fought that day. The Vikings, having the superior position and superior forces, observed Alfred leading his forces into position. The Viking warriors, in a terrifying battle array, viciously mocked the Saxon army. Dr. Benjamin Merkel describes the nature of Viking mockery in his book, The White Horse King. The Viking taunt was studied and oft-practiced literary genre among the Danish warriors. The subject matter of this mockery moved from general observation about the cowardice of the opponent, 
and how his corpse would soon be fed to birds, to more personal speculations about the various women folk waiting behind in the Wessex villages, and usually culminated in the accusation that the men of Wessex actually lacked any natural affections for women in the first place, end quote. The Danish warriors did not show a hint of fear against this enemy they had defeated merely four days before. Viking soldiers, by Danish law, were equipped with shields, spears, and axes, with the wealthiest carrying ornate swords. Alfred assembled his men below an army that appeared more akin to a pack of bloodthirsty wolves than that of ordinary mortal men who met their deaths in terrible battle. Alfred looked around with confusion and perhaps some inward fear as he realized his brother, King Ethelred, was not in his position to do battle. With this realization, Alfred was left with two choices. First, retreat and have the Vikings chase them down from behind to be relentlessly harassed and killed in the ensuing and disorganized rout. This would both decimate the Saxon military and its morale. The second option was to stand and fight. Alfred determined that if this was their last stand, they should do it with their shields up rather than their shields left behind strewn on the ground in retreat. Alfred, embracing the bloodlust of battle like a wild boar, screamed the order in the Viking chaos to assemble the shield wall. The Vikings, faced with a much smaller army than expected, swaggered confidently as they assembled and advanced their attack down the White Horse Hill. If they had known the history of this hill, they may have had more humility. The hill received its name from the white rock that was etched into the top of the hill in the shape of a horse in full gallop. <laughs> this hill sits adjacent to Dragon Hill where St. George killed a large fire-breathing dragon in an unlikely victory. The top of Dragon Hill has a bare patch where nothing grows, almost as if the very poison of the dragon prevents anything living from taking root. Alfred had his own dragon in modern-day Uffington to kill and the battle looked equally difficult. The hopes of a victory on the scales of St. George was their only hope. A victory here would prevent the roots of the Viking people from sinking into the lands of Wessex. The Wessex men, reflecting the confidence of their leader, Alfred, assembled the shield wall. Dr. Ben Merkel says the following about the shield wall battle tactic. Even as early as the time of Alfred, the shield wall was already considered an ancient tactic. Harkening all the way back to the ancient Greek hoplites of the 7th century BC, it consisted simply of a line of men standing shoulder to shoulder with their shields overlapping one another, forming a continuous wall of protection. This line of shields was supported by a depth of approximately 10 ranks of additional soldiers positioned behind the front line leaning into the front rake to allow them to hold their ground and stay locked together, not unlike a rugby scrum. This tight formation had the potential to be virtually impenetrable, provided that the courage and endurance of the soldiers held." End quote. The Anglo-Saxon culture demanded that a leader was, in fact, leading and not directing without risk of harm. Alfred was a leader down to his bones. 
he had not only assembled the shield wall, but joined at the front. Battle commands and troop movements could not be directed over the cacophony of battle. As long as the men along the shield wall saw their leader fighting, they kept fighting. As soon as their leader fled, they fled. The deep ranks of men were grist for the shield wall mill. The shield wall would grind in battle, as shield pushed against shield, spears prodding to find flesh in the small gaps created by the pushing men. In the shield wall, the spears, not the sword or axe, was the most formidable weapon. Spears were better at snaking through the wall, whereas slashing weapons became a hindrance due to this brute force shoving match. As dangerous as a spear was to the shield wall, the danger of cowardice was much greater. Many men could fall to the wounds of a spear without danger to the morale of the men. In battle, men are wounded and killed in the fight. To a point, seeing a brother in arms take wounds in the glory of battle acts as spurs in the side of a war horse, feeding the battle lust and the fervor of battle. However, if there are cowards in the shield wall, then the entire army is at risk. One man fleeing was worse than many men being killed or wounded. A single coward seen running for his life was at risk of taking the heart of the entire army from them. As a result, such a man fleeing would cause a cataclysmic collapse of the shield wall, and the repercussions would be a decimation of that army. As soon as men began to flee, there would be no protection. The army would be routed from behind as they were run down, axes and swords finally free to swing at the backs of retreating men. One coward could lose an entire battle. That day on White Horse Hill, the Norsemen did not encounter a coward. They encountered a wild boar of a man. Alfred, leading from the front, pushed with his men. The much smaller army, taking courage from their leader, pushed the enemy back up the hill. The Vikings had underestimated the leader of this small band of men. In spite of their fervor, the Wessex men began to take losses from the ferocious spears and axes of the Viking warriors. When a man was injured or killed in the wall, it was vital that the man behind him filled the gap. Any hesitation would give the enemy a breach that they would fill with dangerous warriors. The breach would cause the strength of the wall to become a weakness in the battle formation. The men of Wessex filled the gaps without hesitation. The next man knowing his duty filled the gaps. The battle had reached the precipice. One side had to give because of exhaustion from the grueling battle of shield to shield pushing. The men of Wessex had thought their pagan enemies were invincible. The resignation of glorious death was suddenly replaced with shock as the Viking lines disintegrated. The massive Norse shields were replaced with the backs of the fleeing men. At long last, King Ethelred had arrived at the battle. Until then, the Vikings assumed they were fighting the entirety of the Wessex army. Then the king, with the other half of the army, charged into their flank. The rout was on, and the Norsemen were slaughtered in their retreat.
The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Eric Kahn, joined by Pastor Brian Frenchman Sauvé. That's actually not my middle name. I think I just it's, changed it. It's pronounced Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Brian Charlemagne. Sauvé. Thank I you. mean, I'll accept that. Thank you, Eric. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Mr. Dan Burkholder. Uh, this has got to be a tough episode for you, knowing that your people were utterly slaughtered and defeated. I mean, those yeah. cowards. <laughs> yeah. Those cowards. If only got, that was the last battle, though. I it know. wasn't. There's a lot more battles. Yes. Uh, yeah, gentlemen, yeah. we've been gearing up for this one. I'm for, just kidding. I'm not pro Norse paganism. <laughs> your people did That's, a lot more rape than yeah, after that. I, I, hey, I'm pro that they actually converted <laughs> to Christianity. They did convert. That they is converted. a And fought in the crusade so it was sort of like converter die um <laughs> gentlemen uh this episode in particular i think we've been talking about alfred this is one of the episodes where i think for us maybe kind of reading alfred ben merkel talking to him in, in a sense sort of inspired the whole season um there's just something about alfred and this guy in particular dan that is uh inspiring i think Part of it, as we'll get into in this episode, he's it's sort of the typical underdog story. He's the guy with his back against the wall, all that good stuff. But just excitement level on this one. Obviously, you did a lot of the work for this yeah. episode. No, it's very high. Well, I didn't name my son after Alfred. So that's that's Brian Sauvé over there. Pour one out for King and not just Alfred. Alfred Kingsley. Alfred Kingsley. I just want to make sure everybody, like nobody misunderstands. It, it, it nobody, is. It's like when Aslan is like the talking lion is Jesus, right? <laughs> I want people to be like, this man, this, this man, this king was named after the great. There's no mistaking. We, we, actually, no one we, mistake. we actually had two, two children in the church after all of our Alfred talk. So yeah. we had two Alfreds. We had two Alfreds. Uh, what an amazing, uh, amazing name. Uh, gentlemen, the other thing that's uh, interesting about this episode as we talk about excitement, you know, you think about Crusaders, they all have to have armor. I was thinking about we received the the body armor from Premier Body Armor, one of our sponsors. And uh, I don't know if we've talked to them yet about this, but maybe the official sponsor of the next Crusade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know how they'll feel about that as a marketing opportunity, Eric. But uh, yeah, certainly it would help. I mean, come on. Certainly. If you could go back in time to, to one battle, you know, with a with a mod deuce. 50 caliber and, 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 and full plate carriers. Like wh- which one would you choose? Probably not that, you know, obviously not this one because the good guys got the dub, but it, it would definitely help. Yeah. It's important battle. Uh, speaking of important battles and important content, Dan, we also have, we want to let our listeners know the Deus vault, which is the Patreon exclusive show. Uh, recently we published an episode on Christopher Columbus. Was he the last crusader? Was he Dan? I don't know. We'll see what happens. You got to listen to the in the future. <laughs> That's wow, that right. was a masterful tease. Yes. A masterful tease, guys. Uh, one of the other things we'll be talking about uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about Alfred, but not everything. There's actually quite a lot to cover about Alfred. So upcoming episodes of The Deus Vault, we're also going to be talking about a very important principle, really the theme for the next conference here, June 6th through 8th in Ogden, Utah. But Alfred's Burroughs, this is a pivotal for understanding Christendom and kind of, Brian, a lot of concepts that we take for granted, uh, educational reforms, those sorts of things, I think uh, will be really important as we continue in the season. Yeah, those kinds of communities are highly applicable. The principles of them to thinking through 
life in uh, semi-hostile territory today and figuring out both defense, depth, and all of the constituent parts of a community that's not just durable and can withstand attack, but is also worth preserving from attack. Because those aren't the same thing. I mean, you could have a, a community that exists, but what is it making? What is it producing? And I think Alfred got that. Yeah, that absolutely. The culture needed to be there at the center from the church and the people on out. Yeah, well, it's sort of the, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, loving what's behind you. Yeah. Loving your culture more than, you know, hating the enemy, that sort of thing. And really having both in place. Uh, Brian, I want to start with you as well. As we look at this episode, um, as I said before, you know, everybody loves this come from behind Hail Mary underdog story. Uh, You know, I know you're following the Super Bowl when you have the last man drafted playing quarterback in the Super Bowl for the New York Knicks. Follow me now. I I, I <laughs> am genuinely have never Brian. heard of this until this moment. <laughs> until this moment. You could have put me on like who wants to be a millionaire, million dollar question, phone a friend, you're gonna do a phone you got to walk me yes. through this because I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah, you can definitely identify, maybe not with Brock Purdy since you don't know who that is. I have no idea. But with the underdog, the guy who is an unlikely hero, and we have Alfred in this situation but I just want to ask you, what do you think about, you know, the human psyche that resonates with that particular type of story? Why, why do we? You know, I think it's certainly something that God loves. God loves this story because he uses it so often in history to demonstrate his own glory mm. that he'll often raise up uh, a single courageous man to who is not even the one who you would think would be the guy. Right. He's not the firstborn or he's not the strongest or he's, you know, he's the line up all of the sons of Jesse and he's the one who they forgot about because <laughs> he's like so unlikely. Well, we got this like if God doesn't want any of these guys, we got this other kid. He's like out there shepherding the sheep or uh, or Gideon, who's, you know, at first doesn't seem like he until the spirit of God comes is courageous. I do think when you get this mixture of the judgment of God coming on his people, the chastening discipline of God. That in the midst of that, this is just a storyline that he has woven into so many of his stories. Ultimately, I think because the the master hero tale just is an echo from the story of the gospel where um, the God man faces down all of the hordes of death and hell and sin by himself and he conquers by dying. Right. He 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 goes out and he and then he chooses 12 like undereducated mainly blue collar guys along with some enemies of state and enemies of the very people of God, the tax collector. And he's like, okay, now, you know, I've, I've won the principal victory. Now you guys go out and here's your mission. Just take over the whole world. That's it. Just baptize all the nations, teach everybody to, to do everything I said. And they're like, all right, we got this. So I think there's something because God wove that story into the fabric of the world I think he also wove that story into the fabric of the human soul. And then the last piece for me is to see, is to notice, to get all of that, which I think most of our listeners, they get that. But then to see that God didn't stop telling stories in 32 or 33 AD. God is still telling that story. God is still sovereign over history. God is still the one who's orchestrating armies of Norsemen and uh, the, the, beleaguered, the beleaguered forces, I guess, of God's people, you could say there like he's still telling that story and he didn't even stop then he's still telling that story today yeah i think it's amazing um 
it reminds me of the G.K. Chesterton quote. The, he says this, the one perfectly divine thing, the one glimpse of God's paradise given on earth is to fight a losing battle and not lose it. Yeah. Again, capturing really, I think what you were talking about, Dan, your thoughts on that. Well, I think, I think the, this story really resonates with Brian, especially because you see David and Alfred, uh, King David and King Alfred, both youngest sons, Alfred. I mean, he had all of his brothers were killed in yeah. front of him. That's, he was unlikely to become King kind of uh, sickly. He was, mm-hmm. yeah, he was kind of sickly, um, but he was a youngest son. And I think it just shows to Brian that, you know what, the youngest yeah. sons, you know, they don't have to be petulant, spoiled. No, they can brats. be. They, they could can, be kings. It's possible. They can truly rise up and <laughs> above uh, their you station, know, win glory above their station. Absolutely. <laughs> well, often, you know, this is funny that you mentioned that, Dan. Because I take it that Brian is the youngest son. I'm the youngest son. <laughs> in, in British estates often, because of um, the inheritance of the firstborn, youngest sons, they didn't have an inheritance often that was of much note, even among lordly and noble houses. So youngest sons would often be the ones who would go out and they'd be like, well, there's nothing here. And so I'm going to the, I'm going to the India. I'm going to India, like the, the, the colony there. It's like a young lion leaving the pride <laughs> yeah, to I, go make it on his I'm own. I'm going to go like yeah. win glory myself. And, and then they come back and they're like, oh, you know, how are you doing older brother here holding down the, the fort, you know, of the estate that you got to inherit? I bet you've been going on a lot of fox hunts. Well, I started an extremely profitable sugar plantation. And now I am a Lord of Jamaica or, you know, something like Jamaica is not in Africa, by the way, whatever. Look, (laughs) or India. I went to public school. (laughs) The other day, Lexi asked me, where is new England, Brian? And I was like, is that a city? (laughs) Oh my word. The city of new England. I'm like, I know it's somewhere. It has something to do with Tom Brady. You know, there's, you know, some, it's in America. Wow, that's impressive of football. Yeah. Well, also it's, uh, you know, east of us. So I was pretty accurate. Brian arrives in Calcutta and he's like, hey, man. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> some of that jerk chicken, man. And instead, <laughs> instead they're like, would you like the Doritos Locos Taco <laughs> from my 7-Eleven? Uh, having being. won the hearts and minds of all of America with those impersonations. We, we are in Eric. the basement, but... It doesn't stay in the basement when you speak <laughs> like true. that. It's uh, important to remember that thousands of people will uh, likely it, listen to this. It's actually amazing to me how serious and moving this show can be and get derailed so quickly by quickie mark jokes. And usually ethnic impersonations ethnic. are what does it. Well, those Mock-a-day. are the best. <laughs> day. Well, I, yeah, we haven't, I haven't done Ojibwe in a long time. We, we haven't done that in a long time. Uh, Dan, one of the, <laughs> one of the things that I want to move on to now is we think about the shield wall. Uh, I, I'm thinking back to last year's conference in particular. We had uh, Mr. Nate Fisher uh, from New Founding was here, and he was talking about the capital of courageous leadership. Like this is the most important kind of leadership right now in our day. But I think there's a connection here with Alfred and his courage in the shield wall. So first of all, it I guess walk me through this. Just why is that so important? But especially for Alfred in this time, Right. This mm-hmm. particular time is demanding. It's almost a moment like nobody would really want that position. Yeah, it actually mirrors a lot of what's going on, I think, culturally today. The reason that men right now are looking for courage instead of titles, that's really historically what you've seen uh, in recent history. 
is uh, you look for honorifics, you know, titles, uh, credentials, things like that. This was part of Nate Fisher's talk at our last conference is that credentialism is dying because people realize we're not in a, you know, neutral world, positive world where these men have been raised in institutions that actually create leaders and they have some sort of capital with some honorific on the end of their name. Right. And so now we have a time where essentially we're outnumbered and we've been betrayed so many times by these credentialed men that the, the real test of true leadership are the men that are going to say, assemble the shield wall. We don't retreat. We don't run from this fight. Half of the half to half of the army didn't show up, which we see uh, more and more in modern American Christianity is that you are betrayed by those whom you often venerated as heroes of the faith. They will stab you in the back and they will take half the army from you. And so you are looking for men that will actually lead from the front. As the saying goes, gold is the money of kings. Silver is the money of gentlemen. But debt is the money of slaves. If you're tired of seeing your wealth sapped by the silent theft of inflation, consider adding gold to your financial plan. Gold and silver have been recognized as sound money and a store of wealth for centuries. Converting your savings into gold and silver will protect and preserve your wealth so that one day you'll be able to pass down a true inheritance to your children's children. That's where our friends at Alpine Gold Exchange come in, offering 0% buy-sell spread, gold leases with up to 3.5% annual return, paid in gold, by the way, and secure vaulting right here in Utah. Alpine Gold approaches every transaction with fairness, honesty, and respect, reflecting a strong Christian business ethic in all that they do. Head to ogden.gold today or tap the link in the description to sign up or schedule an appointment to speak with an Alpine Gold advisor today and see what would best serve your family. And just so you know, if you schedule a call, you'll be speaking with Jace, Ethan, or Stu, three members of Refuge Church right here in Ogden. Head to ogden.gold and check it out today. Today's episode is sponsored by Premier Body Armor, your top choice for safeguarding your family. What sets them apart? Well, Premier isn't here to convince you to wear a plate carrier around town. Nope. They're focused on innovating armor right into your normal everyday life. Think bulletproof laptop case or lightweight armor insert that fits into your favorite bag and stops most handgun, shotgun, and even rifle ammunition. Unlike much of the tactical industry, choosing Premier Body Armor not only ensures that you're getting amazing armor, but you'll be doing business with a family-owned Christian company. Visit PremierBodyArmor.com today and use promo code KINGSHALL for 10% off your order today. Got questions? Reach out to customer service or send their president an email directly at alex at premierbodyarmor.com and you can speak to him yourself. Don't wait to invest your family's security, but reach out today to Premier Body Armor. Don't carry a bag? No worries. How about a moisture-wicking athletic t-shirt with minimalist and lightweight soft armor panels built in? Check the link in the show notes or visit premierbodyarmor.com today. You know, there's nothing quite like a great cup of coffee in the morning. 
Here at New Crescent Impress, we've really been enjoying coffee from our friends at Squirrely Joe's Coffee, a family-owned coffee company from Illinois. Joe and his wife, Rachel, put a ton of effort into quality roasted beans and wholeheartedly support us in our vision to bring all of Christ to all of life. Yes, even to that cup of coffee that's in your hands. You can order your first batch of coffee from Squirrely Joe's by going to squirrelyjoes.com or by clicking the link in the show notes below. First-time customers will receive 20% off their first order, so be sure to head to their website. Again, that's squirrelyjoes at squirrelyjoes.com. Let them help you in your mission while you help them in theirs. Caffeinating the Modern Reformation. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why we buy our meat from Salt & Strings Butchery. Salt & Strings is owned and operated by our friends Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by our friends Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat we've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values as well. Salt & Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chuck roast, fajita meats, and ground beef. The hog box features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorite pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast, and breakfast sausage links. Right now, through the end of March, you can get $20 off your next order with the code KINGS. That's K-I-N-G-S, KINGS. Use that code, follow the link in the show notes to place your order today, or you can go to saltandstrings.com. Be sure to follow them as well on Instagram. Well, and I I think, too, if you look at our day, and, you know, obviously sort of fast forward, but you, you look at guys like maybe like a Dusty Devers. I think like in our circles, this is why it's such, I guess, just an encouragement. It sort of draws men to himself because Brian, in the midst of what we've seen in the evangelical world, we haven't seen a lot of courage like this. We haven't seen a guy say, this is God's word. I'm not apologizing. Let's go. Yeah. I, I like think about where this happens as well. What kind of marketplaces and where the stands have to happen. A lot of the time right now, they're in the realm of, of words. Where are you willing to say the thing that you know has just instantly lost you all possibility of patronage from the elites, from the in-group of the world, from their inner ring, when increasingly in the evangelical world, 
that's who they're signaling to for support, the, the, the Russell Moores of the world. And in our, our world, we tend to think like, like those people's name is mud in our kind of circles. But a lot of the time we forget how insulated we are and how small we are in the broader world that there are still massive political tokens, financial tokens to be gained from being uh, a trader, like Dan said, from being the guy that um, you're actually, instead of fighting courageously, not only are you not doing that, you're actively warring against your own people. There's still a lot of power and prestige and seats at important quote unquote tables to be had by doing that. And so today, like you think Dusty Devers is a great example where it doesn't matter tomorrow if the nine, I think he has like nine bills that he's proposed or something like that, um, that cover everything from uh, like pornography, yeah, pornography and sexting to um, no fault divorce to the cu- currency abortion, and yeah. abortion, things like that. It almost doesn't matter right now whether any of those bills succeed. What we need are a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 men who are willing to fight what right now look like certainly losing battles. Like Alfred standing there and saying, look, even if we, even if we get killed to the last man, we're going to be slain standing here on this hill with our shields in front of us. We're going to draw the fire of the enemy. We're not going to flee. We're not going to try to barter, uh, you know, and, and give them, you know, a little more ground and a little more ground and a little more ground and hold them off. We're just going to stand and we're going to fight. We're going to take their scorn. That's the shield wall today. And cowards in that wall, cowards in turncoats, are the most dangerous thing to face us right now. Yeah, that's what's going to ask Always you. Like, the case. It, it fascinates me that the coward is actually more lethal to the army than somebody dying. Yeah, I mean, look at uh, when you look at Aiken and his family. Having sin and cowardice in the camp is always deadly. It's always turns out to be deadly for the people of God, you know? So it's like one of the ways that we need to weigh leadership today and weigh the quality of leadership and who to follow is, um, is that kind of calculus. How much energy is spent in flinging arrows into the, the, your people? How much time and energy is spent in the turf war? Well, it it does interest me because uh, there was another video I think Sam Holden put out. uh, It was old sermon dubbed over it from Greg Bonson. Mm -hmm. So this is old. But one of the things Greg says in there that I find so fascinating, he said, you know, back in the day, Westminster Seminary, they rally their forces and they write their papers. And what are they attacking? They're not attacking the rot in the culture. They're not going after abortion. Mm -hmm. None of it. They're going after the, the big problem of the day then, theonomy. Um, And today you could probably see the same thing with like, you know what? We really need to attack Christian nationalism. Yeah. And Greg says in, in that video, he says you're attacking theonomy and we live in a country where you have to lock your doors and you're not safe in your home. And you think that's the problem. And that's the thing we're going to wait more on noticing. Part of it is just recognizing Dan, like who is the enemy? Who do we actually need to display courage? I think so often what we see in our leadership is they're trying to virtue signal to the left, see, I'm a good guy. And you, as Brian said, you end up attacking your own people. But part of the courage is saying, who's the real enemy? And will I take the stand that costs me? Yeah. I think that's what interests me about Alfred here is mm-hmm. that in, in some ways, like he, he, you, you got to be standing there thinking like, I'm probably going to die. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's easy for us looking back to go, well, he won. Of course, the courage was the right thing to do. 
but he's looking, where's half my army? <laughs> like, where is everybody? And these insane, rapey, you know, mad fight to the death brawler kind of like they're right in vastly outnumbering us. Gay Vikings. He's saying the gay Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> he's thinking, I'm about to be. <laughs> This is yeah. bad. These remind Sorry. me of the Saracens. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. This is uh, this is terrible. Uh, Dan, one of the things I want to ask you, there's something about great men. I think of Stonewall Jackson. I think about Alfred. Alfred is described as a wild boar. Something about battle transformed these men. Seemingly ordinary men that you might not have looked to, yet when the fighting starts, there's a certain kind of guy who proves out. What is it about that? It's manly courage. It's a number of things. But what is it about that quality in a leader that is so important? Yeah, I think it's actually an intangible to a degree. But there is something universal about all these men uh, that you had mentioned, especially a guy like Stonewall Jackson. Here's a guy who was not very popular, um, you know, as a teacher, a professor. His students didn't particularly care for him too much, but for some reason on the battlefield, what he did was he won their hearts to courage. That's really what it was, is he was able to win their hearts to courage. And it was more, you know, it was more than just mere words. It was because he was at the front too. He had proven out that, no, I'm willing to take, take shots here. I'm willing to be fired at. I'm willing to be on the front line. He was actually risking something. That's right. And that's what Alfred did as well. That's why this story is particularly inspiring to me is because you actually see this was a this was an expectation from the, in the Anglo-Saxon culture is that the leaders had to lead from the front. He was in the middle, in the front of the shield wall, and the men to his right and to his left were his lords that he had given gifts to and they had given him their vows that they would stand in battle. And the men were inspired by that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I want to ask you as well, when you look at our situation today, do, do you think we have cowards in the shield wall? And if so, specifically, where do you see this happening? Well, one way that we know for sure we have cowards in the shield wall is that anybody listens to us here in Ogden at all. Because we have you know, one of the, the astonishing things about Ogden, Utah, is that we have zero theological degrees period. Zero institutional help. Nobody from Acts 29 or some big organization was like, hey, follow these guys. They've really, you know, they've gone through, you know, our, our whole process. We've, you know, they've kissed the right rings and now here, here they are. And people listen to this podcast and not, change their entire lives. Not that could geek. have been more offensive than your Indian 7-Eleven joke. Nobody, by the way. <laughs> it is true, though. It's like not gatekeeper approved. Yeah. Well, and, and why it's 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 actually funny to me. It's because you know, over and over, what did we have to do? We had to just notice something, fight a, a big battle in, in our own midst first, like in our own, okay, we think this is true. We're going to stand here and we're say just, the true we're just thing. going to say the true thing. And, and most of the time it's like not in the most sophisticated, again, we can't appeal to degrees. It's, it's not like this high learned for the most part, we've just kind of figured this thing out as we go. And and I'm not trying to toot our own horns. I'm saying that this is a pattern generally right now in the Christian landscape is that because one of the reasons credentialism is dying is because all of those processes to appoint the voices, the people you should listen to, um, ultimately what they produced were cowards who gave way at exactly the point of the enemy's attack over and over and over again until they had given away 
all of the institutional power that good Christian men for a century plus had built. So they gave all of that away. And now people are looking around and what are they actually looking for? Most often the thing they're looking for is simply courage at the points of attack, courage on issues like feminism, courage on issues like um, race and, and racism and DEI and all of these equity inclusivity things, courage in the front of, you know, a million different issues where the leaders have given way. So I know that there are cowards in the shield wall today, partly because we even exist. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. Obviously, you could think of people like the Gospel Coalition, the Russell Moores of the world, yeah. David French's people like this. Um, Dan, what what else, I guess, comes to your mind when you think of cowards in the shield wall? Where do you see it? Well, yeah, uh, just piggybacking off of Brian's point that the creden- mere credentialism isn't enough because it's lost credibility because of the production of cowards. But but the thing that I think is easily missed is that that's actually the aim. Yeah, that's it was actually the aim was to produce cowards. And so you see in this battle at Ashdown, which honestly was a small battle. It was like, I'm surprised it's even made it into the the footnotes of history. There's very little recorded on on Alfred. But what you really see is a good image of what we have today. So you have these Vikings that had fully embraced their sexual immorality. They'd embrace slavery, human sacrifice. And uh, you see similar things today. But because there were no cowards in Alfred's army, they were able to stand and fight from this pagan onslaught. Mm -hmm. But today we have cowards in the shield wall who are not fighting. Not only are they not fighting, but they encourage others to not fight. They're actually actively leading in their cowardice. To cause Christians to retreat, and to usually, cause the route to happen. Usually, and you see this with in- institutions and churches falling. Yeah, usually attacking people who do fight. That's right. Exactly. The yep. the sin, and the, it's, it proves your point, Dan, that what they're trying to create is cowardice. Is that the one sin that will the elites will go the hardest against is fighting, and it's fighting the thing that is not regime approved. You are not allowed to notice that. You are not allowed to fight that. You're not allowed to name that. You're not allowed to write on that. You're not allowed to podcast on that. You need a hush-hush. This is when backroom conversations happen, when text messages are sent and phone calls happen behind the scenes and say, hey, 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 you can talk about anything, but you can't talk about that. You got to quiet down about that. Those are where you start to see the cowardice. Well, and I Where think, people are retreating precisely at the, well, it's like, no, 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 the Norsemen are there. Like, we got to talk about that. We got to go attack there. And there, if you start to rally people. And it seems uh, like you've got problems in your own camp. Let's let the, <laughs> yeah, the Norse worry know, about themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, when, as soon as you start rallying people and there becomes a momentum towards this, you will see 50 different strategies unfold to attempt to uh, geld that force. To say, you better, you better not march over there. And, and what you're often finding are the places where the levers of power from the pagan world have effectively been uh, uh, stabbed into the church and they're pulling hard. And, you're, and, and it's like, but that right there is actually when you know you need to go run full tilt. You're like, oh, they, they, if they want us to stop here, it's like full send. You know, that's, that's when you go. <laughs> shield wall up boys let's let's go and a, a lot of the time in our world it's so funny um it, it's 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 not funny but 
right now the world is the battle is over ideas and it's the, it's it's meme warfare right but the the thing is it doesn't end there if you lose the battle of ideas the the next kind of warfare is is back to alfred and the norsemen it's back to oh they're actually enslaving and killing and you know destroying whole civilizations yeah it's interesting because uh, i was thinking of michael walsh's book last stands and it's a concept you find in Churchill, but also Michael Walsh catalogs in Western civilization, all these times in which Western peoples fought to the death, mm-hmm. uh, including the Spartans. That would be like one of the greatest examples of 300. We can th- think even of like Gideon's 300. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because they say, and, and now Alfred, who clearly knew his history, if a people will fight to the death, they usually come back. If they surrender and are defeated, they're done forever. It's over. And so I think just on issues like post-millennialism, patriarchy, I get it. The culture hates you. The culture's telling you these things are never going to take root again. You're never coming back from the grave. And I think to have this mentality among our people where it's like, give me 300 good men and we'll die for it. And you even think about the Spartans. They stopped the Persian invasion. There would be no Western civilization without 300 good men. Mm-hmm. defending the gap. Yeah. And so I think that's what we have to do. The other thing I would say about Alfred, I love this picture of when, when you read the account of Ashdown, it's simply to him a matter of duty. Mm-hmm. He says, my brother's not here. Yeah. This is my duty. And he immediately goes to the front and he knows what a king is supposed to do. Yep. And he starts fighting. There's actually not a lot of drama in the moment in terms of like, him like hand wringing and oh, I need to, you know, I need to say a prayer to God. I don't know what to do. He knows he has to champion the men. He goes and he fights. He puts his life on the line. This was also only the second battle he had ever fought in. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned, completely in the green. Open, yeah. He had fought a battle four days before, but they had been utterly defeated. Yeah. Like it was, it was not even close. They were routed there. And so he had just come off the heels of a loss and yeah. with inexperience. And so it's actually quite amazing yep. that he was able to do that. Yeah, one of one of the other things I, w- I want to highlight, and we'll ask you a question about this that I just find so intriguing in the parallels for today. So Ethelred, right, Alfred's brother, who is, I think, at that time he's supposed to be king. He's king. He's king. No, he's definitely king. He doesn't show up to the battle on time because he lingers long in his prayers. <laughs> now, yeah. one of the things that I tend to notice today is I think that we have a lot of cowardice that masquerades as pietism or two, radical two kingdoms theology. So I want to ask you about this. Do you agree? Do you see sort of this band where I I see a lot of the people you talked about them before? A lot of the people who are most upset with the Dusty Devers is like the pietistic uh, camp. R2K camp obviously hates us, hates anybody like Dusty who's trying to change the world. I heard one of the R2K guys recently saying the state and the church cannot do anything to speak against Hitler if they were back in that position, they can't do anything to speak against the evils of the world. They just have to allow them to happen, whatever they are. And it got me thinking, it's like, well, isn't this just pietistic cowardice? So I want to get your thoughts on those. Yeah. B- back to the battle. So the reason that they were split is because the Viking army had actually divided in two. And so Alfred and, and Ethelred had decided they were going to split in two as well. And then you have... Uh, King Ethelred, he's in mass and in prayers. And there's some debate whether he was actually 
a coward or not. But right. uh, as you recall, they just suffered defeat four days earlier. And so his excuse was that he was in mass and deep in prayer and didn't show up for the battle. Well, Alfred now has both armies, the Viking armies that are converging on him and did converge on him. And the thing is, we definitely see this today, like you said, with, um, you know, that example of not speaking against Hitler, the church shouldn't speak against Hitler or the evils of our day. Uh, and the thing is, the shroud of pietism is just another prime example of cowardice. But what these men don't actually realize, I think, in their piety, because their their piety clouds their judgment in such a way that they don't realize that their people are actually being stolen. It's like their people are actually being stolen and they're doing nothing to stop it. And in fact, are fighting a counter war. Uh, against those who are fighting, not to belabor the point, but this is definitely alive and well right now. And, and I think that that is another prime example of cowardice. Yeah, you see a, a, a big towel for cowardice in the church is when you find that um, inaction is being promoted as a theological value. Um, in other words, again, the thing that will get you in the most trouble is fighting certain issues, be, standing, and many of them are political issues, standing up and saying they're moral, political, ethical issues. Like, no, the church can't give way here. We're being counter-discipled here. We have to stand up on something like sexuality. We have to stand up on something like, you know, today, one of the biggest issues that is uh, a hot button politically outside the church as well is this immigration issue, like illegal immigration, where the, you know, North America is being functionally invaded by millions upon millions of immigrants. And we know that the left is leveraging this in order to create voters to bolster, consolidate their power and ultimately progress and, uh, uh, you know, put forward an antichrist regime, politically speaking, on the whole world. That's what they're trying to do. And so you'll see, though, as soon as, you know, fundamentalists stand up and start saying we this is not this is not okay. In fact, if we would just go back to the doctrines of our forefathers and understood how they thought about things like nations, and it, you know, we look at Stephen Wolf's book. We go back and we say, how did Calvin? How did the reformers think about nationhood and and um, how the civil father and the the city father ought to protect the commonwealth and you know all of these ideas? As soon as you start to recover those and say, wait, that actually applies here. This is not just a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. There's an antichrist uh, propaganda and machine that's rolling forward to not just win a political victory, but actually ultimately win in an asymmetrical war against Christianity. Right? We know this. What happens the second you start rallying around and saying, we're going to fight on this front? Mm -hmm. You immediately get 15 regime theologians who are saying, well, you hate the gospel and missions because look, the mission field is coming to you. And how dare you fail to love orphans and widows? And if you really, if haven't you read the Good Samaritan? And they start to, they do really bad theology. They do a lot of proof texting. But what are they doing? They are fighting against your action. They're fighting against Christians actually fighting the correct fight. And they're doing it. With a, 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 a with emotional of, manipulation yeah, and theological well, is, justification, yeah, yeah. like that's this not is, actually our job, Christians. Let's just preach the gospel. 
Yeah, this is the thing years ago. I mean, they've been saying it for a long time, but like Russ Moore, he was like, well, you know, Jesus was a brown skin immigrant from the Middle East. Right. No, but except that he like, wasn't. But I mean, none uh, go, of which go is ahead. true. Go off, King. But uh, even the <laughs> new commercial series, uh, uh, like the He Gets Us, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, two immigrants like beating the tar out of each other. It's like domestic violence. And they're like, have your relationships ever been strained? Jesus gets you. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I don't understand what is happening. Hang on here. just a second. Hang on just a second. It's it's a classic move, but it's just you get regime theologians will always protect the interests of the regime and they will weaponize um, theological justifications in order to keep the people uh, conveniently inactive. Well, this is the whole David French, Russ Moore and whatever the Chinaman guy is um, that they do the this theology series together. But the whole thing is the church. They they were talking about the church is not a place to talk about politics. Uh-huh. You need to be completely neutered from these conversations. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're pushing 100 percent like leftist political theology. Right. The church is not a place to push politics. But if you love your neighbor, get the vax and <laughs> unlimited immigration. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's not political. Those that's are gospel not, issues. That's not political. And, and it's just if what we need to do is train the people to see through that. And actually say, okay, here's a prerequisite for a leader in the camp. You have to be a guy that has consistently for the last five years or however long stood up in the pulpit and poked the gods of the age in both eyes and been willing to say to your church, even if you fire me, I'm not going to back down from this. Even if the elder team runs political maneuvering against me, I'm not going to give into this. I would rather be unemployed than to be a regime theologian. Like those are the issues today, again, that are creating this system of the trust economy where the credentialed are losing and they know it. And that's why they're shrieking so loud right now. Yeah. They're, they're losing. And people who are simply often bubbas, like guys that are not elites in any sense of the word, they're just normal pastors. Like, us all, <laughs> guys i'm describing dan's like, describing they're, they're, me and they are midwits right you know it's like you know we're no on the on the meme you know the, the bell curve meme and you got the monk and you got the, the the simpleton and then you've got the the midwit in the middle we're like on the left all, all of the most important leaders right now with few exceptions are the guy on the left who's like six day creation is true <laughs> god said it you know why is that well, it's because people are wising up to this play. It's not effective. It's not going to be effective for long. But uh, we need to continue to be training people to see through this kind of regime theologian. Yeah, really, if you were to read the story of our time, if if uh, these guys were around to give Gideon counsel, <laughs> yeah, they would say like, hey, don't destroy that, that um, idol of Baal. You know what we should do? Let's make a smaller version. We'll just bring it into the temple. Right. And I don't like it. I know you don't like it. Yeah. Nobody really likes it, but I think it would be best for everyone. Yeah, look, if we just put it in the temple, and then it was an opportunity to evangelize these these right. The, the Baal worshippers will come to us. Yep. What we can do is we could say like we'll put both, you know, worship of Yahweh and the Baal, and it'll just be kind of a pluralistic sort of thing where they they can choose. We don't want to force anybody. That would be really wrong and icky. So I mean, freedom you know, of a religion, yeah, I mean, well, right? Religion. This actually reminds me of the scene. Uh, where Samuel, you know, Saul is supposed to kill Agag. Mm-hmm. And he has this all these justifications why he let him live, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Maybe it was like that. Who knows? Uh, we don't get all the details. But I, I love this very poetic scene that's probably crocheted and hanging over people's <laughs> toilets in the South. But 
Samuel flips out and he says, what is the sound of the bleeding of sheep then? Because God gave you a command and he takes a sword and he hacks Agag to pieces. It's a priest right there. That's a priest and a righteous response to evil. As you guys are talking about this, I can't help but think the people in Alfred Shieldwall, if they would have turned and run, they're actually less cowardly than the leaders today who are actively seeking to undermine the fight in the first place. Sure. Flee for your life. Yeah, any, like you can almost yeah. understand a man, man who's afraid be, for yeah. his life. Any man can be until, and, and I haven't until you've been in a life or death. Somebody's trying to kill you by cutting holes in you situation. Like lest any man should boast of his courage. Right. Of course. But you're right. That is, that is at least understandable. It's still disqualifying and a sin and a grievous sin. It's a grievous sin at the heart of masculinity. But how much worse to be the guy that's like, pay the Danegeld. Let's just pluralize. Let's let him in. Let's yeah. just. Well, part of the reason worse. that Alfred was in this position is because Mercia, the king of Mercia, paid the Danegeld. And the Danes did go away for a moment. For like two and minutes. they attacked yeah. Wessex. Right. Um, yeah, and we'll get into Dane Geld in just a minute, Dan, but I, I do want to ask... Um, Which it, is actually ironic when you consider Christians coming out against Christian nationalism and fundamentalism as essentially taking the Vikings and turning them south. Yeah. Yeah. Because they attack those guys. Yep. Well, and I, and I do think that the, the cowardice of the leaders today is more like, hey, we've sided with the Danes and we're going to use like Christian theology to try and poison the Christians in Wessex. Um as I said, I do want to ask you a question, though, about leadership in general, just to crystallize this point and clarify this point. Uh, when you have a strong leader, obviously, we've talked about leading from the front as being important, a good practical application lesson for people. What else would you put on that list? Uh, effective leaders encouraging people to be that today? Yeah, I think one of the things that Alfred displays and others like like we used Stonewall earlier is that they have foresight. They're able to see what they're able to read the chessboard, if you will. And they're actually able to see if they've hung their queen or not, which is probably too deep a cut. But, but a lot of times you'll get leaders that think they can read the chessboard. They think that they're really good at it. Yeah. Not realizing their own blind spots, not taking counsel from other respectable wise men. Whereas uh, these men, they could see the chessboard accurately. They knew the times and they could see the consequences of something like flight. So they, uh, even even uh, Stonewall was encouraging, you know, the Confederate army to charge to. Yeah, he he understood the only way we're going to win. We have fewer people. We have far less manufacturing and, and economic ability. If we don't win this war fast, we are going to lose. Right. We can't win a grinded out war. And he was like, look, you got to wage total war. You got to burn everything to ground that you follow. And you got to march all the way north until they uh, until they uh, don't have the stomach. That's it. To battle. That's yeah. the only way. Right. And everyone said, oh, that's icky Stonewall. That's he so actually saved lives too. And the thing is, he was right. That's the only way the South could possibly have won outside of massive intervention from foreign powers. That well, was it. That's something else I, I think leaders you have to understand is this principle of if you want to win, you're a smaller force and your back's up against it. There's a level of aggression and audacity that you have to hit fast and fierce. And even with the battle down, one of the things that, that I keep coming back to um, in our own present situation is pursuit. When you have the enemy on the run, if you don't finish it, if you don't put them down, 
Like you've got the wolves on the run. That's that's nothing. Yeah. They can, as we'll see, they can easily regroup and come back and attack you. Yeah. You've got to go for the kill. Yeah, well, and uh, decisiveness is another really important leadership characteristic that Alfred displays, and that's needed in our time. So yeah. one of the things that is a temptation amongst leaders when they don't know what to do is that they'll often start micromanaging other things. Like, I, I mean, obviously it's not in the account of Alfred, but uh, if he had saw the the Danes and he's like, where's my brother? What are we going to do? Hey, you guys, you know, what are you doing with your shields? Like, you know, they're, they're not ready. And you're like, start critiquing everybody around you. And you're like attacking people in your own lines while there's an enemy that's ready to hack you to pieces in, in front, you know, through indecision, just not knowing what to do. So you attack your friends. That's a, that's a really bad thing that, that leaders tend to do. Uh, so decisiveness is really important. When Alfred is faced with the enemy, he knows the situation. He can see uh, into the future. If I run, what are the consequences? What is our, our vision? And okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight, assemble the shield wall shows no, no hesitation and shows complete confidence yeah. and is able to lead his men. We're going to fight victory. here and not here. Yeah. That's, that's the leader. The, the mm-hmm. leader understands that you're n- almost never as a leader um, in a situation where you have unlimited resources and can attack every possible problem. Multiple fronts even is usually foolish. Right. The leader must know what is the correct front and concentrate his forces. And even in that, a leader must be willing to lose. This is what so often has missed and allowed the decline of Christianity is leaders who weren't willing to lose. They, they saw battles and they saw that they were battles that they disagreed with. The, they saw the enemy. They were like, okay, if I allow this thing to continue in my church, then my church is going to lose over the long haul. But they looked at those battles, many pastors, and, and this applies to lots of different things other than the church as well. And they said, but I don't, I'm not certain I can win. I have a chance of winning, but I might get run out of town. I might end up losing enough people, losing my position, losing my safety, losing my comfort, losing my authority. And so a lot of pastors, they, they play at fighting. They do small little feints and they kind of take small little stands. And then they, they might take back two steps forward, but then they give way three steps back. And the enemy knows that if someone's not going to fight total war, that they can they can be strategic all day long. That's what the left does. Mm-hmm. They take they'll they'll huge swell of the tide, full DEI, full wokeness, full everything. They'll let the tide get all the way to where it is about 2023, I think. That was like peak peak wokeness. Now there's kind of a cultural reaction. The right is ascendant. People are starting to see this is ridiculous. Our planes are going to fall out of the sky if they try to run on Slay Queen. So we're going to have to like actually hire some middle-aged white guys and like leave them alone a little bit more. What will they do now? They will let us take back 40% of the ground that was lost by their time so that they can make an, another all-out run five, five years from now. And if you just follow that process, what's going to happen? Well, total victory for them. So a leader has to be willing to lose. He has to be willing to die. Like, like Alfred was going, this is it. I'm, I'm willing to give it all right now. 
Are you the owner of a small business with the potential of a large net income that will likely be subject to onerous taxation? Well, don't wait until you begin filing your tax return for 2023. Now is the right time to work with one of our sponsors, Defined Benefit Partners. In some cases, they can help you legally defer taxes on $200,000 to $300,000 worth of business income. Are you desiring to sell or buy a business but are short on the capital needed for the deal? Well, they also help facilitate such transactions with a win-win scenario for the seller and the buyer. Check out the links in the show notes for more information about Defined Benefit Partners. Would you like to get control of your money and set up a system that will guarantee for the rest of your life tax-protected compounding interest and growth? How about having 24-7 electronic access to your money for funding wisely chosen investments, home improvements, and other large expenditures without going to the mainstream banks? This is not a dream, but can be a reality when working with our sponsor, Private Family Banking. You can find their contact information in the show notes below. To make this season even brighter, Private Family Banking is giving away a pair of tickets for the upcoming Blueprints for Christendom 2.0 conference hosted by Right Response Ministries. It's a $500 value taking place March 1st through the 3rd in 2024 in Taylor, Texas. To enter the ticket giveaway, Join Private Family Banking's email list by sending an email to banking at privatefamilybanking.com with the subject line TICKETS in all caps and include your full name and mailing address in the body of the email. The ticket entry period will end at midnight central time on February 13th in 2024 and the winner will be notified via email on February 14th. You must be 18 years of age or older to enter, and only one email per person can be entered into this giveaway. Thank you. You, you go back to like World War One and Two, and the collapse of the British Empire. The military and national collapse is actually secondary to the collapse of the morale and the belief and the vision of the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a time when when great men aspired like Alfred to great things and they believed them into the core of their being. Yeah. And so they fought. And so I think for us, especially this is, again, why history is so important for leadership. But do you actually believe in this project? Right. Do, yeah. do we actually believe in this postmillennial vision? And and of course, the answer is yes, but it it will result in a certain kind of fighting spirit mm-hmm. that is uh, a zeal. As yeah. the Greeks would call it, a fire rising within you, yeah, and fire always spreads. Yeah, yeah, one of the one of the reasons that we see institutional decline, we see companies decline, and we see churches decline, is because often you get a leader that is Alfred like that displays courage. Men rally to him, and then he has success. But at a certain point, like what did Alfred had to lose? I mean, all of the nations around him are falling. Right, his ki- the king didn't show up to battle. There's you know, they're going to be annihilated is, is probably he's pretty much alone. He's alone. He's like, well, here we we've got to fight or else we're going to be decimated. You know, in some ways you can say, well, that was that was an easier decision because he's already dead. So he's just attacking as a dead man. But then as soon as he gains power and starts pushing back the Vikings and takes the kingdom, one of the temptations that leaders have is after they've grabbed enough power or had enough influence, righteously, unrighteously, their main concern is keeping it. And so they soften the message. And and back to your point yep. about oh. like fighting faints and things like that to yep. show like, hey, there's some of the old spirit left in yeah. me, but it's all just bluster. There's yeah. a, and they slowly decline. Yep. It's consolidation of power that's not passed on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and maybe one of the the modern examples, even with Jordan Peterson, remember like he got famous for like really punching the left oh, in yeah. the mouth. Oh yeah, and YouTube videos. You can like, fire me. I don't care. Really great. And then all the stuff now is like him and crying, crying yeah. and doing like bad Bible exposition with like Ben Shapiro. Yeah, but it it's yeah. I think the desire to popularize or whatever it is that that yeah. weakens, and so good leaders have to keep the same vision as well. I want to want to ask one question. Uh, for you guys, and then and we're going to jump into another story here. Um, but we can also ask a question about luck, which I, I find interesting. A lot of people said Alfred's lucky, right? You say that about a lot of companies, great leaders, great teams, whatever. They just got lucky. Uh, but it's interesting, Dan. We we dove into this with Great by Choice. They talk about luck. Yeah. And 30-year 10x companies who who last and do a wonderful, fantastic job, they found that most people have about the same amount of luck. Mm-hmm. You read the story of Alfred and you find, well, the Danes had luck too. Yep. Um, and it's really not about luck. It's about what kind of position you put yourself in to deal with the luck that you're given. Yeah, to capitalize. Are you yeah. prepared for the opportunity? And, and I think about it like if you're if you're thinking about a third string quarterback, uh, maybe somebody like the Cardinals, you have third string quarterback, guy named Kurt Warner. He's past his prime. Two guys get hurt and they're like, Kurt, we have no other options. They go to the Super Bowl because that guy was ready to step up. So mm-hmm. that's luck. He also had a, ba- a bunch of bad luck. So when you're thinking about great leaders, Alfred, his victories, Dan, how do you think about and how do you process this issue of luck or good providence, we might say? Yeah, I mean, in this position, sure. I think that the battle at Ashdown was providence. If you, you know, it was good luck, definitely. But he was in a position uh, with his soldiers that actually w- was able to capitalize it. And I mean, I mean, I just re redefined what you just said, but if he had not capitalized on it and retreated, he, he had an opportunity to capitalize and he would have lost that and they would have surely been decimated. And the same thing happens with companies or churches, um, you know, pastors where because of cowardice, the opportunities do exist but you never capitalized on it. You don't know what could have happened. If you had just made the stand, who knows what God would have done. You're always waiting for it to be won and then step in to victory. Yeah. Or the ideals like maybe the Viking, only half of the Vikings show up to this battle and we outnumber them. Now I'll be courageous. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't work that way. You, you, You don't live in an ideal world. And so you have to be able to, uh, display courage and, Take the opportunities, even if they don't look like opportunities. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a tragedy doesn't look like an opportunity, but it often is. Yeah. Even 2020 was an opportunity. Like that's kind of our kind of how we met. And so, you know, a lot of good, you know, new Christendom press, all that kind of comes out of 2020. A lot of people didn't capitalize on 2020. Um, Brian, you could even think about something like music. I'm sure you've heard this before, but anytime there's some success in something, people say, oh, Brian's just really lucky. And then you might respond with like, well, yeah, but you don't see the hours of production. You don't see the, the work. It's certainly gifting talent, all those things. But as a wise leader, that really means nothing unless you do the work. Yeah. Lucky people. There is such thing as someone who has a big break and they have a momentary just success. And maybe it's great. Like some people do get lucky and they they ape all into, you know, some meme coin and become a multimillionaire. Right. But most of the time, those people, when there's not a character, they end up just failing in slow motion after that for a long time. You, you, you have to be consistent. Like You have to just, every day, do the thing you know you're supposed to do. 90% of the time, you don't actually want to do the next thing. 
deep in your soul. You know, you, you like the third string quarterback. Does he really want to grind it out for multi-hour workouts and then training sessions and then knowing he's not going to knowing play. there is a 1.3% chance that he's going to make it on the field and then and, and in an NFL game this season at all, let alone in a moment where he might actually really have an opportunity. Usually it's like, oh, we're blowing out the other team here. Take a couple reps or, you know, what it, it, who the character to do that gives the illusion often of luck being the thing. But, you know, music is an example. Most most of the people that you see who are um, like all of a sudden you start to see some musician blowing up. There's a lot of secular examples like Noah Khan right now. Big folksy kind of had a couple hits and now everyone's like loves his music stick season baby stick season yeah you sure and it's like it's it's explicit guys so don't don't think that king's hall is like there you go it's it's not great i haven't listened to anything so i just know i just know it's popular guarantee you that guy is in his mid to late 30s and has been grinding it out making music and getting really good at that and writing and he's probably written a hundred really bad songs right like and just ground it out and Many, most people who complain about luck have never had the, the fortitude to grind out a hundred failed attempts at something or to just practice something and do it over and over and over and over. Most people that sit on the sidelines and fuss about how people are just lucky. Most of those people are just lazy and, and, and that's fine. They, they can keep, they can keep sucking, but <laughs> you, Alfred click great leaders clearly um, are not just momentarily lucky. Yeah, having all the virtues of character and discipline and that sort of yeah. thing that will propel you uh, to leadership greatness. After the crucial Battle of Ashdown, Alfred and his brother, King Ethelred, suffered a defeat at the Battle of Bosing. They conceded more land in their retreat, falling back even further into their own territory. After such a loss, a sound drubbing at the hands of the Vikings, Ethelred and Alfred made a key decision in the history of the island. Ethelred called the Witten, a council of the wise men of Wessex, before him. He presented he and Alfred's plan for the succession of the throne. If Ethelred suffered an untimely death, then Alfred and his sons would claim the rights to the throne. Alfred would have to provide for the family of Ethelred in exchange. The Witten, after quick consideration, approved of the choice. The decision proved vital. A few days later, Ethelred and Alfred led the Anglo-Saxons into a fateful battle at Merton. The Battle of Merton proceeded much like the first few battles fought between the two armies. Both formed shield walls, an echo of Roman times. Again, Ethelred and Alfred led from the front as both sides exchanged spear thrusts. After several hours, the Anglo-Saxon shield wall remained impenetrable. The lines of the Northmen crumbled and retreated. The exhausted men of Wessex wallowed in their seemingly assured victory. In their joy of victory, neither Alfred nor Ethelred pushed the pursuit. Instead, they relaxed. They casually approached the fleeing Danish line. But then, suddenly into their horror, the Danes collectively turned and reformed their shield wall. The Saxon elation disappeared in an instant. They frantically reformed their shield walls, but it was too late the Viking army rolled over the Saxons and destroyed them. Alfred and Ethelred lost all control over their men in the ensuing retreat as Saxon soldiers were mown down without mercy. Alfred searched for his brother after the battle, only to find him seriously wounded. The Vikings now seemed to be unstoppable and were making massive inroads into the kingdom of Wessex. 
King Ethelred's major injuries only made matters worse. He struggled with fever and loss of blood, and a few days later died of his wounds, leaving the throne of Wessex empty. Alfred was next in line. The throne passed to him, and he was crowned on the 15th of April, 871, Anno Domini. It was not an ideal time to rule. A lesser man would have rejected it. But as Alfred had shown at the Battle of Ashdown, he was no lesser man. Alfred's rule began inauspiciously. As Easter had come, Alfred hoped for a new deliverance from his godless foes. Instead, it was exactly the opposite. A new Viking fleet sailed up the Thames with thousands of new warriors. They joined the already present Danish force at Reading. They were led by three new Viking kings, Guthrum, Oscatel, and Anwend. The Northmen had heard of England's easy plunder and had come in search of gold. A few minor skirmishes occurred in 871 and 872, all of which resulted in losses for Alfred. At the end of 872, Alfred was forced to buy the Danes off. In exchange for money, the Danes promised to leave Wessex alone for five years. Surprisingly, they seemed to keep their word. The Vikings left Wessex and ransacked the surrounding countryside, establishing a puppet king in the nearby kingdom of Mercia. Dr. Merkel speaks to the Danegeld in his book, The White Horse King. Quote, Paying the Danegeld never buys more than short-term peace. The payment reveals a weakness, a willingness to give up wealth without a fight. And like the scent of blood to sharks, this message could do nothing other than attract future Viking attacks. End quote. A poem by Rudyard Kipling explains the Danegeld in plain terms. And that is called paying the Danegeld. But we've proved it again and again that if once you've paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane. Indeed, the action removed the Danes from the Kingdom of Wessex for only three years, not the promised five. During this time, Alfred should have sought to fix the problem with the Saxon system of military, which did not have a standing army. Instead, they had what was called a feared. When time for battle came, Alfred would call on his nobles who would supply their own small militias. This process was clunky and inefficient. Alfred was at a loss as to how to fix it and decided to just leave it as it was. Near the end of the peace in Wessex, Alfred started to sense a Viking return. He focused his sparse resources on building a small navy, earning him the honor of being the father of the Royal British Navy. In 875, Saxon watchers on the coast reported sightings of a fleet of Viking ships. Luckily, the fleet contained only seven of the famous Viking longboats. The Danes clearly had plunder in mind and not open warfare. Nevertheless, Alfred personally led his small navy against the Vikings, and they achieved a resounding victory. One ship was captured, the other six put to flight. Though the victory was small, it was sweet. It gave the Saxons at least a small measure of confidence. The following year, they would need all the confidence they could get. Another Viking attempt to take Wessex would occur, and this time, the Danish intent was not merely plunder, but complete destruction of the Saxon people. As for the next Danish invasion, Ben Merkel writes, In the year 876, the Viking king Guthrum, leader of the Danish forces occupying East Anglia, led his army out of Cambridge under cover of darkness and began a hasty march toward Wessex. Guthrum was able to lead his Danish army, virtually unnoticed, through the heart of Wessex, all the way to the southern coast, end quote. Guthrum had caught Alfred heavily off guard. 
By the time Alfred and the rest of Wessex became aware of the invasion, Guthrum had already seized the town of Wareham. Wareham was ideally located because it was bordered by rivers on two different sides. The two rivers then connected to the back of Wareham, therefore creating a natural defense on three out of the four sides of the city. When Alfred finally arrived at the city, Guthrum had already dug himself in and was amply prepared for a long siege. Alfred was hesitant to indulge Guthrum in such a siege. Wareham was clearly a naval base, surrounded as it was by water that was easily accessed by the sea. But why would Guthrum choose a naval base when all he possessed was a land force? Alfred believed Guthrum to be waiting on a large Danish fleet, which bolstered his sense of suspicion. Alfred's two options appeared to be either laying siege to Wareham and hoping that Guthrum did not have a naval force, or again paying the Danegeld to buy time. Alfred chose to pay the Danegeld. Hostages were exchanged to force Guthrum to keep his word. Guthrum swore on the name of Thor that he would leave Wessex. In a savage and ruthless display of barbarity, Guthrum slew his Saxon hostages and slipped out of Wareham in the middle of the night. By the time Alfred caught up to him, he had taken the city of Exeter, which was also well fortified. To compound matters, the suspected Danish fleet was spotted along the southern coast, containing upwards of 3,000 men. Alfred prayed for deliverance from the Viking menace. He prayed that his lands would be delivered, even if it involved a miracle. The prayers of the meek do not fall on deaf ears. John 9.31 says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. In an amazing twist of providence, a massive storm wrecked the entire Danish fleet ships off the coast, some 3,600 men. The tables were now turned in Alfred's favor. Guthrum negotiated a quick treaty and left Wessex. He returned to Mercia under pretexts of peace, but raised a massive army and began preparing for yet another invasion into Anglo-Saxon territory. Guthrum planned his next attack with impeccable timing. The Viking force on the border of Wessex and Mercia launched a sneak attack on the twelfth night of Christmas. The date of the attack was a stroke of genius. Chippenham, a tactical advantage of a city, was occupied by Alfred so that he could keep an eye on Guthrum in Mercia. But on the twelfth night, the good Christians were celebrating the birth of their lord with great vigor. They left the city exposed. Guthrum attacked, and Chippenham fell in a single night. Alfred and his immediate family as well as their bodyguard, fled into the night. Alfred was then betrayed by several powerful nobles who lost faith in their king. He was forced to hide in the watery marsh country, mirroring stories of Robin Hood hiding in Sherwood Forest. Though it did not feel like it at the time, the next part of Alfred's adventure was the sort that inspires legends. Truly, Alfred was the first Robin Hood. With just his family and a few men that remained loyal to him, Alfred hid in the woods and conducted small guerrilla warfare. He used small raiding parties to pick off groups of Danes. Those Anglo-Saxons who had deserted him also became targets of his attacks. The headquarters of Alfred's new operation was a small island called Athelney. It was two acres in area, surrounded by a river on one side and marshes and bogs on the other. It was only approachable by boat and it was hidden from view. It was a perfect hideout. Again, according to Dr. Merkel, quote, 
Nearly all the great legends for which Alfred is still remembered refer to these few months as Alfred wandered the wilds of Wessex, figuring out how to retake his kingdom." End quote. The most famous of these legends is the story of Alfred and the Cakes. According to the legend, Alfred first arrived at Athelney alone and was scouting it out as a potential base. Keeping his identity a secret, Alfred lodged at the home of a shepherd and his wife. One day, Alfred was left to watch the cakes that the shepherd's wife was baking. He became so lost in thought that he let the cakes burn into a crisp. When the shepherd's wife returned to find her cakes burned, she chastised Alfred for being lazy and taking advantage of her hospitality. Alfred accepted the criticism and dutifully turned the cakes over. This was a perfect example of the meekness of Alfred's character. The King of England was mistaken for a poor yeoman and castigated for burning food, and yet he humbly accepted the approach and changed his way. During his stay at Athelney, Alfred had to reinvent himself as a man and as a king. In his previous battles, he could never be faulted for his zeal and determination. However, he now realized that he lacked cunning. He had been outsmarted and outmaneuvered by Guthrum. He now sought to be as wise as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. He stayed at Athelney because he could track Guthrum. He could analyze his opponent's movements and favorite strategies. From this secret hideout, Alfred studied Guthrum and truly learned from his mistakes. Such traits are the marks of a superior man. Alfred now successfully engaged in guerrilla tactics, something he wasn't previously accustomed to. He used subterfuge and espionage and practiced moving his troops silently around Wessex. After almost two years of hiding, Alfred decided that the time was ripe to expel Guthrum from his kingdom once and for all. In the late spring of 878 Anno Domini, Alfred rode to Egbert's Stone where he had mustered his remaining army to make an assault on Chippenham, where Guthrum dwelt. It was a force of 4,000 men, all of whom were ready for a last gasp battle to save their home. Previously, the church calendar had been used as a weapon against Alfred, this time, he would use it to his advantage. He chose to march from Egbert Stone to Chippenham on Whitsunday, or Pentecost, displaying his newfound cunning. It was a move that Guthrum did not expect, as he assumed that Alfred and his soldiers would spend the day worshipping. Guthrum hastily gathered his army and marched to Bratton Camp, a fortress ten miles from Chippenham, in order to cut off Alfred's advance. Because of the stealth and speed Alfred had maintained, Guthrum did not have time to fortify Bratton camp. Alfred, his prayers said and his orders given, prepared for a decisive battle. On the 5th of May, 878, the shield walls of the Anglo-Saxons and the Northmen met in a ferocious battle. The hurled spears of both sides reportedly blocked out the sun as they fell in droves among their targets. Many lay dead on the fields of Bratton camp. Man after man collapsed dead in the Saxon shield wall, but man after man arose to take his place. Guthrum had arrogantly chosen to face the Saxons in the field of battle instead of inside the walls of Bratton camp, confident in his victory. Now, he wasn't so sure. Growing anxious and fearful, he sent out his best warriors, the Danish berserkers. The drugged-up warriors ran naked toward the Saxon shield wall in a blood-boiling frenzy, clanging their swords together with intoxicated fervor. Such things had broken the Saxons' will before, but Alfred's stay in Athelney had done him a favor. Only those who were completely loyal to the king 
and therefore courageous men had stayed with him. The Saxon shield wall remained unbroken. Guthrum was now aware of his arrogant mistake. The Viking shield wall began to crumble in disarray. Coward after coward retreated from his place beside his brothers in arms. The wall disintegrated under the brutal attacks and cries of the Saxons. The Vikings turned in a full-fledged retreat, panic in their eyes. They stumbled over one another in their haste to retreat, dropping their heavy weapons as they did so. Still, Guthrum thought to himself, they've never pushed after our walls broken. Surely they will not change now. But he was wrong. Alfred had changed. He would not repeat the mistake that cost his brother his life at the Battle of Merton. The men of Wessex pressed the retreat, destroying all Danes in their path. Almost all of the Danes were slaughtered as they raced in Bedlam for the hills. Only Guthrum and a few of his commanders escaped, slinking back to Chippenham. First the hunter, now the prey. The tides of war had changed, and they had changed for good. Alfred, the great warrior, the great leader, and the great man had taken back control of his country. Never again would he bow before such godless men. He was truly the king now. Guthrum was ousted from his hideout in Chippenham after two weeks of siege. What followed was the most one-sided agreement ever signed by Danish people. In the treaty, Alfred took as many hostages as he wished and gave none in return. Guthrum would leave Wessex with his remaining men and never return. Here, Alfred chose to demonstrate his Christian mercy. The Danes had been nothing but cruel and heartless to the West Saxons since their first invasion in 866, but Alfred was not cruel and heartless. He promised Guthrum his freedom if, and only if, Guthrum would take the Christian sacrament of baptism and that Alfred become Guthrum's godfather in the process. Guthrum agreed. Three weeks later, Alfred led Guthrum and his men to a small church in a town called Aller, a short walk away from Athelney. The church was merely a shack. Wessex had impressive churches at the time. Alfred could have tried to impress Guthrum with his Christianity and shown him the earthly riches of his religion. Instead, Alfred brought Guthrum to the lowliest, most humble, ramshackle church that Britain had to offer. It was the very church Alfred had worshipped at during his stay in Athelney, the lowest point of his life. Perhaps he wished to show Guthrum his humble origins. Either way, he presented to Guthrum an honest depiction of Christianity. It was, and is, a humble religion. It was at this church that Guthrum was baptized. The typical Catholic rituals were performed, and then Guthrum was led to the baptismal. The priest submerged him three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. On the third submersion, Alfred grabbed Guthrum by the shoulders and pulled him dripping from the water. The two stood face to face. Alfred, who had sponsored Guthrum's baptism, announced Guthrum as his godson and rechristened him Ethelstan, now a member of the house of the King of Wessex. By this action, Alfred forgave Guthrum for all the offenses he had perpetrated and welcomed him into fellowship, disregarding the previous conflict between the two. Alfred embraced Ethelstan as he would his own son. Ethelstan was then treated by Alfred to 12 days of Saxon feasting, a period during which Alfred bestowed numerous gifts on his new godson. After the feasting, Ethelstan returned to the conquered kingdom of East Anglia and began his reign as king there. The question now was whether Ethelstan would hold to his new baptism. The first test of his Christianity came just months into his reign over East Anglia. 
a large Viking fleet had sailed to England and met with Ethelstan and asked for his permission and aid in raiding and plundering Wessex. When this was reported to Alfred, he prepared to meet his godson in battle yet again. But Ethelstan surprised every West Saxon with his decision. He vehemently told the Vikings no and sent them away empty-handed. Next, Ethelstan pulled his armies away from the Wessex border. Ethelstan and Alfred would never meet in combat again, but remained on good terms for the rest of Ethelstan's life. Modern historians tend to take the cynical view of Guthrum's baptism and claim that it was nothing but a ruse. However, nothing after the fallen Viking's conversion shows that he was anything other than a sincere Christian convert. He regularly attended mass, made several peace treaties with Alfred, and minted a coin in commemoration of St. Edmund, a king of East Anglia who had been killed by Danes. When he died in 890, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle reported the death of a Christian king named Ethelstan, who was simply the godson of Alfred. No comments were made about his previous life as a pagan. Though the suspicions of the truth concerning Guthrum's baptism may never be entirely shaken, he lived the life of a Christian after his baptism, which is all the evidence needed to conclude that he was indeed a true Christian. Well, gentlemen, what a banger of a story, first of all. The amazing things that happen in Alfred's life. So many things to talk about. Uh, but I was recently watching a movie. Daniel, appreciate this. You've mm -hmm, recommended mm -hmm, the book, mm -hmm. and I have yet to read it. <laughs> Nor have I. Nor has Brian. You haven't read it? I haven't read Dune. Oh, oh, I gave it away just now, but yeah, I haven't read it. Even My even bad. Ben's wife was disappointed that I have not yet read the book that I was lent from the Garrett family. Oh, no. However, I did, like a lazy American, I did watch the movie, okay? But there is a good scene in here, Dan, you can verify if this actually happened to the book. But Duke Leto says to his son, Paul, and I love this quote, he says this, a great man doesn't seek to lead. He has called to it and he answers. Now, Alfred certainly answered the call, and it was not at a great time for the glamorous work of Head. We see, we see all of this, really, in the story that we just read. Um, so, Dan, just talk about answering the bell as a great man, what that requires, and what it requires stepping up to the plate to do for Alfred. Well, you know, Eric, that's an excellent question, and I'm really glad you asked me, because I have a reference in mind. Typically, I, I don't know, you guys don't know this about me. Uh -huh. But it has become my goal to not use Lord of the Rings references ever for yeah. sermons. You, you, I or, knew you're a contrarian at heart. So no, I know no, no. if it becomes popular enough that you will never quote it again. See, when somebody calls you a contrarian, you're really left in a pickle because <laughs> if I say, ah, I disagree, man, I'm, I'm getting razzed right now. But no, uh, to answer your question. It's actually really uh, a, a pivotal scene in Lord of the Rings when Frodo says that he wishes that he didn't live to see such times, you know, and uh, and Gandalf says um, we don't get to choose the times we were born in. We just have to use the time we've been given the best we can. And so I think that does that that scene and. So me using Lord of the Rings right now. It was such a good reference. It, it is. Yeah, I wish first I had thought all. of it and Eric hadn't written it in the notes. First of all, but, he, <laughs> he, he really forced your hand there. But, but here's the, no, no, here's, yeah, okay. the, here's the thing. So, uh, you know, so many times I'm going to backtrack a little bit. One of the things that I think is a problem right now 
that uh, is probably a, a generational thing. But older men look at younger men and say, I wish that things weren't going to be so hard for you. What a what a hard time to live. I feel pity and sorrow for my my generations for for the world that they're going to live in. It's going to be so hard. Whereas Gandalf is saying essentially to um, Frodo, this is a time for glory. You don't get to choose when you live. You don't get to choose the situation that you're put into. But through providence, God made you for a time such as this. God made Alfred for that time to preserve his people through the judgment of the Viking invasion. Yeah. He brought a man like Alfred and put him in that time and through the hardship and all of the situations. And Alfred ended up fanning into flame yeah. what became one of the greatest kingdoms that the world has ever seen. And some of the, the high points of this story for me in Alfred's story, the reason that once you understand his story, you, you realize that the title, the great is, is apt. It's the correct title for him because there are many men whom history calls great, who did one thing well, or who stood in one key moment that really was a really important, a pivotal moment in history. For what I love about Alfred is that he, he did do that. He did stand up and he rose to the occasion and he put himself, he put it all on the line, but he did it again and again. And he learned from his mistakes. Mm -hmm. he, he over and over, he looked back and he was like, wow, we didn't press that attack. And look what happened. Oh, wow. We paid the gate. We paid the Danegeld and look what happened. Oh, and he did this over and over. He humbly looked, even the story of the cakes. Alfred was a man who knew how to lead, but he also knew how to repent. He also knew how to learn. He knew how to humbly uh, assess his own past failures yeah. and, and, and adjust his own tactics. And the key, the crowning part of the story, Eric will probably edit it out. But when he's baptizing Guthrum at that point in the story, I'm like, hold him down, bro. Drown that rat. Like by the time you get to that point in the story, if you read Dr. Merkel's book, yeah. you hate Guthrum. No, I, I, when I was reading the book and I got to the point where he was like, convert to Christianity or yeah. die. I'm like, oh, this is where he like cuts he his head him. off. Yeah. And, uh, and then he, he's like, okay, I'll submit. And I'm like, Alfred, don't you him. are an idiot. <laughs> what are you thinking? How many times has they, have they sworn on their gods yeah. and your God and, and then broken their word? These people are snakes. What a doofus. <sighs> but then he actually sticks with it. Then he does it. And, and, and Athelstan, works, yeah. as we must now call him, he is Guthrum hath died and Athelstan hath ar arisen from the baptismal waters. We got to say He's a brother. You are going to see Ethelstan. I'm convinced you're going to see this man in the kingdom. And it was because of the wisdom of the mercy, uh, the wisdom of the mercy of Alfred. It makes me think of another moment that because I, I suppose it's got to be Gollum, merciful. right? Yeah. Gandalf and Gollum. I'm like, I'm with Frodo. I'm like, kill that, that sneaking rat slinker, 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 and stinker. stinker. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you see the true greatness of Frodo and of you know and I I like to think that Tolkien is obviously steeped in the the, the northernness and in English history and he knows Alfred and other men like him the true glory of Christian forgiveness and mercy and how it shines brightly in this exact kind of setting where like do we really believe that Christ can actually take an enemy a Paul holding the coats while they stone Stephen. And make him into one of the greatest slaves of Christ. Yeah. Well, it's also, I, th I just think as, uh, especially for men, but there's so many times where we're 
we're called to do something, you know, maybe you're, you're, I remember times when like your assistant manager, store manager gets fired and they're like, you're going to be the store manager. And you're like, uh, <laughs> I actually have no idea. I was about to ask, how do you, I log into the the employee portal again? I lost my password, but <laughs> anyway, what was that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you just have to step up. You have to rise to the occasion. You have to adapt, improvise, overcome. Um, so many moments like that. Moses has this moment. I think if you're pastoring and, you know, we've been called to such a weighty and a heavy role to bear the burdens of the people on our heart, all those things. There's moments where you feel heinously inadequate for the task. Mm -hmm. And yet I think, you know, this model of just God gave you the task. Yeah. Rise to the occasion. Do your duty. That's it. Uh, one of the things that Alfred does learn from is about paying the Dane Guild. Yeah. This is, I would, I would equate this to things like you mentioned DEI. Yeah. But, well, I'll just give them a little bread. You know, you watch all football teams now. It's like every football team in the NFL has a chief diversity officer. It's usually like a black female. To make sure there's enough white men, right? Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> right? You're like, you're, wait, you're telling me you're in a sport which is like 90% black. Let's <laughs> yeah, say, like, come on. I don't think we've been worried. Oh, there's not enough female linemen. That's the real problem. Yes. Yeah, there's yeah we need more female linemen. There's really. actually none. So I want to ask you guys... <laughs> Kind of, you know, I just thought of the first kick that that woman did. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they did. No. They had a woman kick. Wasn't it in the NFL? I was college. Or was it college? Okay, and she kicks the ball. And they were like, she lines up to kick off. I just want to put the the the, the Mexican guy who's just cackling and then talking in Spanish video yeah. me oh, right now. Because that's in my soul right now when I think of that Well, we video. do have a, you just know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it went like eight feet. Oh, I'm sorry. Even the announcer, Whatever you though, were talking even about. the announcer, though, he was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a really well. gay example of paying the Dane Geld. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Nobody was like, yeah, she's much better than all the other kickers that we could put on the field. Absolutely. They're paying the Dane Geld. Yeah. They're paying the, the Dane Geld. The Danes are like, no, we're going to kill you and en enslave your, your women and children. <laughs> You know, yeah, if you don't pay us, they're, she, they're paying the D, the DEI guild. Oh, guild. How effeminate Ugh. are leaders today to where they're like, you know what? We, we should give into the gays and the trans, the gay guild and white women. That's who we should give oh, into. Anyway, but I think a lot about it. Like COVID was obviously a really good example yeah. with masks and vaccines and other things. Um, we really did see this where it was like, if you give into the bullies, do mm -hmm. they go away? Yeah. No, no. The only way to tell the COVID people to go away I saw this a video the other day. It was an Irishman and these people came to his door and they were from the city and they were like, oh, we're here to inspect. Do you have a dog? We need to check your dog license. The guy was like, are you joking? <laughs> and they were like, uh, no, we need to check your dog license. He's like, go away. Stop wasting people's time and money. Go get a real job. And he just refused to let them in. He refused to give in. And they eventually were like, well, I guess we'll leave. <laughs> but like, that's the attitude you have to have yeah. when people are trying to exact this toll from you. Yeah. Uh, can you think of any other examples in our culture oh, or society I? when it is? I don't even know what that look means. Oh, I don't know can I? Yeah. One of my favorite recents, you know, recent examples is, you know, Javier Millet, Mille, yeah. the Argentine president. 
Or were we talking about his Jewish prayer based, wall? Right. Like he gets in power and he's just like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, he's going through the government, everything you'd want. Like he's getting rid of the department of this and the department of that and the bureaucracy for gay turtles. And he's getting rid of all the, like, he's just waving his wacky, crazy hair around and yelling in a language I don't understand. And I'm like, that is the fascist energy that I need right there. Oh my like, word. bring it to America <laughs> tomorrow. Oh my like, word. Like Christo fascism, Christian nationalism is not far enough. We you're need Christo fascism, okay? Like, <laughs> you're a nasty let's just person, be honest. <laughs> okay, but then here's just the Christendom. thing. That's, here's that's, the thing. That's enough. Christendom's fine. <laughs> it's the same picture. <laughs> Corporate needs you to see the difference. Okay, but here's the thing. Argentine president Javier Millet. What what do I see when I turn on the news next next minute? The dude's weeping at the Western Wall in Israel with the little hat on, and he's just you know standing there. It, like this, this shame ritual that every Western leader in the entire world has to go through. Apparently, you're not supposed to notice, Brian. Note, notice what I was going to say. That's such a. I'm glad to see all of the, uh, you know, the support that we have for various communities. And what are some other buzzwords that I could use? <laughs> how, can, <laughs> how else can you pay the Dane Geld? Yeah. Well, that's a Dane Geld. The Jew Geld. It's a Dane. What I wanted, it's a Dane Geld. I wanted to see was when he started weeping at the wall, and somebody steps out and says, "Sir, this is a Wendy's." Yeah, like. <laughs> my, my, I just look at it, I go like, Javier, he's not Jewish. He doesn't believe in this. You can give a million examples like this where the Danegeld is often a humiliation ritual that is meant to emasculate you and demonstrate, we won. You work for me. That's what the Danegeld like is. A, it's like a bully pushing your face yeah. towards the dog the poop. The gay geld. It's why you, you don't wear the mask. You don't live in the pod. You don't eat the bug. You don't put the, you know, the little thing in your email memo. You the heat your pronouns. You know, Are you we don't see more Alex Jones. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah, <from> Brian. <laughs> Dude, you have to go full like demons and <laughs> yeah, they're, they're literal pot belly goblin demons. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they're, they'll stab your daughter at the mall. Okay. <laughs> they'll stab your wife, your son. They, but they absolutely will. And, Every time that you give in to the Dane Geld, what you know is that you've just started a clock until the next bigger demand comes. Yeah. And the next demand is going to be your cojones. And the demand after that is going to be your family. And the demand after that is going to be your civilization and your faith. You never pay better to die. Like this is why my guy, Ben Garrett is one of my heroes because he's actually in the room, takes his headphones off (laughs) so you can actually listen. He, this guy, this guy bent the stones on this guy, engineer with the government, and they're like, wear the mask. It will help with the COVID thing. Wear the mask, whatever. And and Ben went, LOL, no. <laughs> and then he just cheerfully went about his business until they were basically like, sir, you should probably seek another line of work. And, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, look, I went to college for years to learn this entire industry and have a good paying job that's secure, but I'm not going to pay the flipping Dane Geld, face Geld, and wear your mask. And that was that. And I just think like if 5% of spineless government employees had done that, would have been over. That Dane Geld would have failed. It doesn't take 50. It takes 5 or 10. Yeah. So this rant, I'm, I can't even remember where we are on the episode, but... I think, the Dane I think I'm done. You, you wrapped it up. I well. think I'm done. Dan, you're a Dane. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's yeah, like, what of it? Do you have anybody? any favorite Dane gilds you like to pay? <laughs> or receive? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Dan's I mean, face. I have to be like somewhat tolerable around you guys, but I seem to just get more of you. So I don't know. Maybe I should stop paying that. <laughs> don't pay. Do you, do you have any favorite in the culture? That you like to oh, aim your Viking oh. <laughs> spears at and destroy. Any any Dane Geld you want to take down? I I'm gonna throw out a Dane Geld while Dan's thinking and putting his head against the microphone. Uh for those in case you missed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Joe Rigney was right on this one. One of the Dane Gelds that's often paid in the church is submission to female leaders. Yes. Who aren't leaders. But elders' wives. And female modes of communication. Feminism and giving into those sorts of things. And what I found in the church is when you give in to a tyrannical woman, maybe she's in your marriage. When you give in to her, you ne- the the Dane Geld is never leaving. Like the feminism is never leaving. HR Karen Lady, it's over. HR Karen Lady. Uh Dan, we were talking about it with Lonesome Dove and July Johnson on the Hard Men podcast, but it's like this guy who's a sheriff, but can't speak up to his wife. Like he is paying a Dane Geld yep. uh, to his wife. So I think a lot of spaces, uh, particularly Christian leaders, uh, when Matt Chandler wears the pink cat sweaters with his lady office people and his wife, he's paying a Dane Geld. That's exactly what he's doing. It's to feminism. And I think that because so much of the evangelical establishment, like their customer is women because they built a product around those yeah. women. They sell the product to those women. Mm-hmm. Now those women have the control. Right. And so I think also what's needed is a lot of courageous pastors who say, you know, as Brian has been doing uh, on his, I don't know, 97 part series on biblical households and women. It's going to be more like 99. All I remember was women are bad, too. (laughs) (laughs) Women are bad. Hey, the two is important. (laughs) Uh, But but we did men first. How many times in our culture will the church actually address women's sins? Yeah, very rarely. So that's a way to not pay the Dane Guild. Because the cost is often you're done. You're done. Like you, you don't have a you, job. You will lose your your job. That's that's why it's really important in this age for pastors to be um again, we talked about fighting battles you are actually could you could lose. But you have to fight those battles. Yeah, and especially because it's probably not worth staying no, in a state of tyranny. No, it's like, do you want to be the uh, vassal boy of the enemies. No, you don't want to be their puppet. Like Alfred probably could have worked out some deal where he stayed somewhere, like at least for a minute with some vestige of power and given his kingdom over. He could have just gone to France. Yeah. He could just left, you know, but he, he didn't. Alfred was like, no, I will. I would rather die than do that again. Yeah. That's really helpful. Uh, final thoughts, guys, as we close down uh, kind of this, you know, it's, it's interesting because you have like G.A. Henty, you have the Robin Hood story, the William Wallace story in English history. They all kind of sound very similar. Um, as we kind of wrap things up here, what primary lessons do you think can be learned from particularly what he did in that time period? Yeah. He's reinventing himself. He's kind of retreating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's going back to a location. Um, but interestingly enough, it's not full retreatism. No. No, because full retreatism in our day especially looks like embracing the enemy's platform. Uh, like our, our version of retreat actually today, full loss, is joining the other team. It's not just do- like fighting a last stand and dying. It's joining the other team. So one of the things that we absolutely do have to learn that Alfred learned was this idea of cunning. That he needed to learn how to be a shrewder operator than he was. 
He was being foolish in the way that he was relating to the enemy. He was expecting them to act honorably according to the given rules of, of warfare. You just have to realize in, in his age and in today's age that our, our enemies, they will do anything. There's no low they won't stoop to. There's no um, vow they won't break. There is no social more. They will not trample underfoot. There's, there's nothing. They will, they will do literally anything to maintain power. They will gladly kill you and your children. They would gladly give your entire nation away. They would do anything to have the power that they want. So you have to understand what Alfred learned is tactics, cunning. And Jesus lamented this, that the sons of this age are more shrewd, more cunning than the sons of light. And that was a lament. That wasn't a good thing. They needed to learn how to have true piety, true righteousness, um, without being fools who are easily played, patsies, idiots. They needed to learn cunning. And so I, I think that that's a really important point to take from Alfred is this concept of cunning. Yeah. So in addition to that, the whole reason that Alfred had to retreat into the swamp was because some of his noblemen betrayed him. They sold him out. And so I think one of the lessons that is really important to learn is that it's, it's quite obvious in this story and in our story who the enemy is. They have pink hair, their status, they're trying to make you do stuff you don't want to do, put things in your body you don't want to put there, you know, make you comply. Yes, Brian. Yes. Uh, make you comply with whatever gay laws that they, you know, that they're shoving down your throat. Um, but or other places. <laughs> but the thing that's actually really difficult to see. Are the people inside the camp that would sell you out? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I think what's so hard is sort of the naming names and there's guys in the middle, right? Where you're like, I hope they do well. I hope that maybe they turn, but you'll watch trajectories of guys like a Kevin DeYoung and you're like, yeah, it'd be really cool if you stopped taking shots at all the right people. Mm -hmm. And you, you haven't really seen courage on the right battlefronts, but I think it is helpful when you have these exiles like David did in his life. That's when he goes to the cave of Adullam. That's when he gathers his 300. And, and realizing, I don't need 10,000 weak-willed men. I need 300 or three or four or five. I need a handful of hard men who are going to be faithful and courageous. And there's zero, I mean, we're talking zero uh, idea that they would betray you. Yeah. Right? Having that close-knit circle of men, that's going to be so much more pivotal in terms of the economies of trust and leadership and tribe, it would be better to have a small tribe of guys that trust you and you trust them. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's definitely true. One of the things that I would want to warn people uh, against is blind trust from people that are actually in that camp. So you look at a guy in like Kevin camp? in the like close knit oh, tight, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, okay. camp. Cause you look at a Kevin DeYoung and does it really surprise you that when he like punches, right? Like it, he was on the on the fringe anyway, you know, or an Alistair Begg. He's not like a big Christian nationalism or Christendom proponent, you know, but I, I just I want people to be prepared for the eventuality that someone that you really trust, not that I know anything or this sounds really ominous, but men are sinful and um, and there is at some point going to be someone that you probably trust 
that will betray you. It's a, it's an inevitability. It happens. It's happened in over our and over. Here, it, that, yes. You know, we've had some of our biggest lessons learned in terms of leading through reform, especially Dan and I over the years, they've almost never been from outside. No, they've no. In fact, Virtually always been. Will you say that again for the people in the back? I think that's really, <laughs> important. really important. They've almost never been from outside. It's almost always been um, people from inside the camp that um, you you go, you start to drift in different directions, and you think like, well, they're, well, they're on my team. Like we don't agree about that, but they're on my team. And the next thing you know, it's like you feel the knife enter your your back, and it's not just like a disagreement. It's like I will destroy you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the times. thing is, like, you expect a battle from Guthrum, right? From yeah, the Vikings. Of He's a Dane. Like when he when he kills people, it's 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 not the same as one of your friends yeah. who will take the heart of you. Yes. You know, if they could. Yeah. And so I think that's just something that and this is my main point. Don't put your hope in men. Right. Even if you get that courageous leader yeah. who's leading from the front and he's fighting the battle, if he is the whole reason that you, you know, are fighting, then you've lost because as soon as he falls, as soon as he betrays you, you'll lose heart. It's important to keep the principles in mind. Yeah. It's important to keep uh, God's promises in mind. And, and, and so I, I just don't want anybody to lose heart if, when, if, and when someone fails them. Yeah. Cause it's going to happen in your, your small circles. It, it's certainly going to happen on all the levels. But it's interesting, too, because somebody like Alfred, if you read his biography, then you find out that he really was successful because he had sons who followed him and carried on his legacy. And really men and people from the Witten and all sorts of people that he trained. It was a strong team, is my point. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of the warning that I would give to people, too, is most people don't have a tribe, first of all. And second, they think that somebody they're following online is their tribe. And it's like, okay, that can be okay-ish if it leads you to actually finding a real tribe in a real place with real people. Uh, but making sure people aren't just like cosplay, LARPing. Um, and, then, and then I think also just saying like part of the strength we've found here is it's, it's not all dependent on Dan. I mean, as good looking as he is. Uh, wow. Not everything. Depends no one on has Dan. ever said that to me. I am going to remember this moment the rest the of my rest life of my, even life. though you were mocking me. I take it as an ins- <laughs> choose as not compliment. to hear any sarcasm. Choose to hear choose what you want to hear. Kane. Hear what you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Actually. So uh, back to the, the, the vows and the betrayal. I can't help but think that Alfred's retreat into the swamp as strategic as it appears. Um, was partly because of the pain of betrayal. So you you have to, you have to understand his eldermen, his leaders, they would meet at his table in a hall. He didn't have a throne. He sat at a, at a table uh, with his men, with his eldermen, his other leaders, and he would give them gifts. They would exchange gifts. Uh, He would give them a lot of wealth, but the most potent gift that he would give to his men were rings this is where uh, Tolkien gets the the ring, you know, in, in Sauron. He, the rings he's giving the rings. Yeah, the rings the for the men. And, for the dwarves. Yeah, yes, I want yes, a ring. Yeah, and, and so Maybe these one were, ring to rule them all. These <laughs> were it. Alfred's ring bearers. Yeah. In exchange, they gave him vows. These were the men that were actually closest with Alfred. So anyway, just keep that in mind uh, as you go forward, because Alfred didn't lose heart. He didn't lose his eye for the vision that 
the English people, what would soon be the English people, the Saxon people who were under the, the blood of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, would defeat the pagan nations and he would not abandon them to the pagan Vikings and their brutal sacrifice, their sexual immorality, all of the, the horrors that they brought with them. And he did not lose heart, but he, he, act, he fought. He assembled men and won men to his cause and, uh, and eventually won. So that's the thing I want people to remember is that it's the principles of the fight, not the man. Absolutely. Love it. Well, as we wrap things up, I do want to make a quick plug for, again, the Davis Vault. That is our Patreon exclusive show. We're going to have a lot more coverage on Alfred. There is, Dan, a lot more to his story that is maybe even more pivotal than anything we've talked about here. Yes. So we want to encourage you to check that out. We'll talk about a number of things. Alfred did a lot. He changed educational policy, monetary policy, government policy, and a whole lot more. But maybe the most pivotal of all He was all about building Christian boroughs, Christian towns. We're going to have a conference on that. We're going to talk more about it in the Deus Vault. So be sure to sign up on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You can get access to early episodes, ad-free, and then special content like the Deus Vault. Brian, I am going to turn things over to you for the charge and benediction for our dearest of all listeners. I've got you. I've got you. Well, listeners, you know, there are many lessons that we could take from the story of Alfred, and I think everybody's going to need to take different ones. But the one that will allow you to do that most effectively, not just with Alfred, but with any of the stories that we tell you from the first Christendom, is the humility that Alfred had uh, to look through his own life and to see his own mistakes and to truly turn from and learn from those mistakes. Be men who are humble and courageous. Right? Be men who have true piety, but also boldness. Uh, be men who are willing to fight the right battles and even to fight those battles if it looks like you're going to lose. Because in every uh, life that's lived faithfully to Christ, there are likely going to be battles like that. that. You're going to have to stand down and say, you know, one out of five, I make it through this the way that I'd like to. And I'm going to fight nonetheless. Be a man like Theoden, who said... No, we do not have a hope of victory, but we will meet them in battle nonetheless. That final reference was especially for Dan uh, in his benefit in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and also Han spite. Solo. Never tell me the odds. One of Brian's favorites. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Star Wars is dumb. <laughs> I so, love Lord of the Rings. Let's just let the record show. I just try not to be cliched. Continue. <laughs> anyway, have, have, that hum- have that humble courage. Have righteous faith. And go out, and, and the thing is, at the end of the day, what we have to remember is that the Lord is on our side. The Lord is on our side whether we stand alone or whether we stand in the multitude. And so don't be the man that flees the shield wall. Keep your shield up firm and fight the good fight of the faith. We'll see you next time in the King's Hall. King's Hall.